Hello, this is Historically Thinking's Commonplace Book for the week of March 31st, 2019. A collection of events, obvious and obscure, personalities, famous, infamous, and hidden, and the occasional quotation and reading. This week was a momentous one in both 1968 and in 1865. On March 31, 1968, President Lyndon Johnson announced at the end of a television address that he would not seek re-election. On March 12th, in the New Hampshire primary, Johnson had been opposed by Senator Eugene McCarthy of Minnesota, an outspoken foe of the war, but a virtual unknown nationally. While Johnson won, McCarthy received over 42% of the vote, Johnson just 48%. His advisors began to fear that, with a 36% approval rating nationwide, he might not even win renomination. And then on March 16th, having seen Johnson's weakness, Robert Kennedy entered the Democratic primary. With his closest advisors now counseling de-escalation in Vietnam, Johnson decided that he would make one announcement and possibly two. In his address to the nation, he first stunned everyone with a surprise announcement that he would stop the bombing in most of North Vietnam to seek a negotiated end to the war. Then he said words that he had written, had written into the speech, but which at the beginning of the broadcast he was not certain he would say. With America's sons in the fields far away, with America's future under challenge right here at home, with our hopes and the world's hopes for peace and the balance every day, I do not believe that I should devote an hour or a day of my time to any personal partisan causes or to any duties other than the awesome duties of this office, the presidency of this country. And then the bombshell. Accordingly, I shall not seek, and I will not accept, the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Then, five days later, on April 4, 1968, Martin Luther King was shot and killed by a sniper in Memphis, Texas. Head of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, champion of nonviolent resistance and racial oppression, awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 1964. He was in Memphis to settle a strike by municipal workers with the civil civic government. In the history of the American Civil War, this week sees a series of momentous events, including the collapse of the Confederate government. On April 1st, 1865, Confederate troops of General George Pickett, yes, he of Pickett's charge, were defeated and cut off at Five Forks, Virginia, by several Union corps commanded by Philip Sheridan. This defeat cut the railroad leading to Petersburg and Richmond from North Carolina, the last source of supply to the Confederate capital and Robert E. Lee's Army of Northern Virginia. It was check. On April 2nd, 1865, Robert E. Lee informed Jefferson Davis that he must evacuate the Confederate capital of Richmond. The message was delivered to Davis as he attended church, along with most of the cabinet, on Sunday morning. Davis and the cabinet then fled by train for Danville, Virginia. Confederate troops set fire that evening to supplies and war material that the Union neither wanted nor needed. That night, the fire spread, burning parts of Richmond, including file after file of colonial and revolutionary-era records, many sent by Virginia's counties to Richmond for safekeeping. On April 3, 1865, Richmond surrendered to Union forces after the withdrawal of General Robert E. Lee's troops. 
Some of the first troops to enter Richmond were from the United States Colored Troops, and eventually it was an African-American cavalryman that guarded the home of Robert E. Lee. And on April 4th, 1865, Abraham Lincoln, who had been visiting the Army of the Potomac in its siege of Petersburg, took a boat upriver with Admiral David Dixon Porter to Richmond. Lincoln arrived at Rocket's Landing and slowly made his way uphill through a jubilant crowd that, according to one source, had just one white person in it, a young woman waving a Union flag. Everyone else had been enslaved. Eventually, Lincoln arrived at Jefferson Davis's mansion, the White House of the Confederacy, walked upstairs, and took a seat at Davis's desk, a moment beloved by reporters at the time and historians ever since. In other world events this week, April 6, 1917, following a vote by Congress approving a declaration of war, the United States entered World War I. That was in 1917. And on April 6, 1994, a plane carrying the presence of Rwanda and Burundi was shot down. They had been meeting to discuss ways of ending the rivalries between the so-called tribes of Hutu and Tutsi. It was the beginning of the genocide in Rwanda. It descended, the nation descended into chaos. Over 500,000 people were killed. Two million fled the country. Birthdays. April 2nd, 1805, Hans Christian Andersen, born in Odense, Denmark, writer of over 168 fairy tales for children, including The Princess and the Pea, The Snow Queen, and The Nightingale. On April 4th, a curious duo, American social reformer Darthea Dix, born 1802 in Hamden, Maine. While just 19, she founded a home and school for girls in Boston, later crusaded for humane conditions in jails and in insane asylums. She was one of the most consequential social reformers of the 19th century. During the American Civil War, she was superintendent of women nurses. And in 1884, on the island of Honshu, Imperial Japan, Admiral Isokuro Yamamoto, the main strategist behind the failed Japanese attack on Midway Island in June of 1942, architect of the attack on Pearl Harbor, December 7th, 1941. He was killed on April 8th, 1943, when American intercepts of his whereabouts led to his plane being shot down by long-range fighter aircraft. And finally, April 5th, born enslaved in 1856, African-American educator Booker T. Washington in Franklin County, Virginia. Freed by the Civil War, he learned the alphabet and eventually graduated from the Hampton Institute in Hampton, Virginia. In June of 1881, he became principal of a new training school for African Americans in Tuskegee, Alabama. It began with a single building and 30 students, but through his tireless efforts grew into a modern university. Given that this week there are no historians' birthdays to celebrate, at least those whose birthdays we know, I think it good to commemorate a historian whose birthday has long since been forgotten. Publius Cornelius Tacitus was a Roman senator, but preeminently a historian. 
Tassus began the Cursus Honorum, the Roman patrician's progress through public offices under the reign of the Emperor Vespasian. During the reign of terror of Vespasian's son, the Emperor Domitian, Tacitus survived and, indeed, progressed in office. But that terror, to me, seems to have been the motive force of his historical thought, not merely the memory of that terror, but a certain kind of survivor's guilt. His Latin is famously taught and brisk, perhaps a stylistic move to create a prose that was the opposite of the ornate praise so often offered up to tyrants, from Tacitus's era to Stalin's. And Tacitus's study of the psychology of the ruler and the dictator remains outstanding. Here, reflecting some of that survival's guilt and his contempt for the faults of his own age, is the beginning of Agricola, his history of the deeds of his father-in-law in the conquest of Britain. He writes, To bequeath to posterity a record of the deeds and characters of distinguished men is an ancient practice which, even in the present age, careless as it is of its own sons, has not abandoned whenever some great and conspicuous excellence has conquered and risen superior to that failing of blindness and hostility to goodness which is common to both petty and to great states. But in days gone by, as there was a greater inclination and a more open path to the achievement of memorable actions, so the man of highest genius was led by the simple reward of a good conscience to hand on without partiality or self-seeking the remembrance of greatness. Many, too, thought that to write their own lives showed the confidence of integrity rather than presumption. So it is true that merit is best appreciated by the age in which it thrives most easily. But in these days, I, who have to record the life of one who has passed away, must crave an indulgence, which I should not have had to ask had I only to inveigh against an age so cruel, so hostile to all virtue. We have only to read the panegyrics pronounced by Aurelianus Rusticus on Pietas Thracia and by Herennius Senecio on Priscus Helvidius that they were made capital crimes, that not only their persons but their very books were objects of rage, and that the triumvirs were commissioned to burn in the forum those splint works of splendid genius. They fancied that in that fire the voice of the Roman people, the freedom of the Senate, and the conscience of the human race were perishing while at the same time they banished the teachers of philosophy and exiled every noble pursuit that nothing good might anywhere confront them. Certainly, we then showed a magnificent example of patience. As a former age had witnessed the extreme of liberty, so we then witnessed the extreme of servitude, while informers robbed us of the interchange of speech and of hearing. We should have lost our memory as well as our voice, had it been as easy to forget as to keep silence. Now, at last, our spirit is returning. And yet, though at the dawn of a most happy age, Nerva Caesar blended sovereignty and freedom, things once irreconcilable, and though Trajan is now daily augmenting the prosperity of the time, and though the public safety has not only our hopes but our good wishes, but indeed has a certain pledge of their fulfillment, still, from the necessary condition of human frailty, remedies work less quickly than do diseases. As our bodies grow but slowly and perish in a moment, 
so it is easier to crush than to revive genius and its pursuits. Besides, the charm of indolence steals over us, and the idleness which first we loathed, we afterwards loved. Yet we shall not regret that we have told, though in language unskillful and unadorned, the story of past servitude, and borne our testimony to present happiness. That's the Historically Thinking Commonplace book for the week of March 31st, 2019. Why not subscribe to our newsletter, Notunda? Just go to historicallythinking.org and click on subscribe in the menu bar. And hey, why not like us on Facebook or even better, give us five stars on iTunes. It will help other people find our podcast. Thanks so much. Right in the corner where you are.